everybody. Happy New Year. I'm sure you guys are going to be grateful next week when we get back to a normal schedule. We got so many people walking around saying, "Where do I go? What do I do?" So it's uh, what we call managed chaos around here. Well, let's take our Bibles and open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 26. Looking this morning at verses 26 to 33, the title of our message is A Great Resolution. And when I talk there about a resolution in the title, we're talking about a New Year's resolution. I mean, if you really want a good one, it's right here in our passage today. I wanted to um, encourage you a little bit because people are saying, my goodness, how long is the book of Genesis going to last? And I just kind of want to show you where we are in the book. The book has two parts. Parts 1 through 11 is the section that most Christians know well. Featuring four events, creation, fall, flood, national dispersion. Now that is in our review mirror. It's been in our review mirror for some time. The second part of the book of Genesis, the longer section, verses 12 through 50, features four people. And those people are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And we are almost finished by the time we get to the end of today's lesson. We'll be finished with Isaac. Isaac won't die. Don't worry. He dies later. But he won't be the main character anymore. Jacob will become the main character. And then Joseph will become the main character. So of all of the items in the book of Genesis, we finished four events and two people by the end of today, Lord willing, leaving just Jacob and Joseph. Now, Joseph is easy, right? Because everybody knows about Joseph. The Jacob may be a little tougher because most people are unfamiliar with the Jacob story. So all of that to say, believe it or not, we're on the downward slide of things. Um, we're, we're, I'm not going to say racing to a conclusion, but at least the conclusion is on the horizon. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the, the, really the end of the Isaac story where Isaac is the main character. And this deals with his covenant with Abimelech, verses 26 through 33. So let's go ahead and begin with Genesis chapter 26, verse 26. And we learn here about Abimelech's representatives coming to speak to Isaac. It says in Genesis 26, 26, Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with his advisor Ahuzoth and Phicol, uh, the commander of the army. Abimelech, of course, as we have said before, is not a personal name. It's a dynastic name. It's like using the title Pharaoh. It's not the same 
guy, individual, that Abraham dealt with back in chapter 20. It's a different individual having the same dynastic name from Gerar, Abimelech. And you'll notice that Abimelech comes and visits Isaac in Gerar. He comes with his advisor. He comes with his commander. And he apparently feared Isaac because look at all of the people, the entourage that he brought with him to deal with this man Isaac, which is the point of chapter 26. The reason that Isaac is respected, the reason that Isaac is feared in the eyes of the unsaved world is because he is the beneficiary of a covenant that God made with his father, Abraham, called the Abrahamic Covenant. And even though Isaac has dropped the ball, he's told a lie earlier in this chapter, the blessing of God continues on this man Isaac because he is walking in the unconditional Abrahamic Covenant, and it's just obvious and it's plain to everyone that will take the time to notice including Abimelech himself and his entourage. You'll notice that this entourage comes to visit Isaac from Gerar. So they've moved from Gerar to where Isaac is, a place that would become known as Beersheba. And there's a sort of a map as to where those two places are. Isaac had been pilgrim, pilgrim, pilgrimaging, is that a word? If not, just fill in the gaps. Sojourning, there we go, that's better. Sojourning in Gerar, and he moved to Beersheba. So what you see here is geography, and you see places, and you see persons. And again, I I say this a lot as we've been moving through the book of Genesis, but I want us to understand that this is real history. Now, this is not story time. This is not fairy tale time. These are real people in real locales with real issues. And so this whole entourage from Gerar, spearheaded by Abimelech, goes and visits Isaac, who is sojourning there in Beersheba. And as this entourage comes, Isaac, of course, sees them, and he asks a question. The question is found there in chapter 26, verse 27. It says, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? Now, it was this Abimelech that basically kicked Isaac earlier out of Gerar. And so Isaac left and went to Beersheba. Isaac didn't pull rank. Um, there comes a time in someone's life where they need to fight and stand their ground. And there comes other times where you just have to try to live peaceably with people as long as it depends on you, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 12. And where that line is really relates to your own personal walk with the Lord. But Isaac, although he had a right and probably the power to fight Abimelech, just said, you know what, Abimelech, you can have your way. I know you took my parking place, but I'm not going to make a scene about it. I'm not going to leave nasty notes on your car, you know. 
particularly when your tire is in my space and uh, you know, I could leave a nasty note in your car saying learn to park and all these kinds of things. And, you know, you have to understand that when you go for the nuclear option with people and you get angry, uh, even though you might have a right to be angry, you sort of forfeit things. I mean, how in the world are you going to teach that person about the love and the grace of Jesus when you can't even keep it together yourself? So Isaac kind of made one of those decisions, and he just left um, this area called Gerar, and he went to Beersheba, and here comes Abimelech and his entourage following Isaac, and Isaac says, why are you following me? You, you kick me out. Now, one of the words I want you to focus on there in verse 27 is the word hate. Isaac said to them, why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? Notice this, that Isaac is directly in the will of God. There's nothing here that indicates he is outside the will of God. And yet there are people that hate him. That's very important to understand because a lot of times we think when we get human opposition from people, particularly this time of the year when you're around your unsaved friends and family and you're talking about Jesus and they think you're completely out of your mind uh, and sometimes their reaction against you is so strong, you think, well, I must have missed the call of God, I must have missed the will of God because after all, if I'm following Jesus, everybody should applaud me. Well, that's not how it works. <laughs> uh, oftentimes a barometer to determine if you're in the will of God is the number of people that hate you actually increases. Not because you're rude, crude, and obnoxious, but because the message of the cross is an offense. Jesus himself warned the disciples of this in the upper room. When he said this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, and I have chosen you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Jesus sending out the disciples from the upper room says, I'm sending you out into a world that will hate you. Now, don't take it personally, because really, it's not you they hate, it's me they hate. Long before they hated you, they hated me, but what they see in you is a reflection of me, and this is why the world hates you. It sort of reminds me of Samuel, one of the great prophets of God in the Old Testament, and there's a time in Samuel's ministry where the people actually arise and they want to do something completely different than what Samuel wants. And God at that time ministers to Samuel. And he says to Samuel, you know, Samuel, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. Don't take it personally. It's, it's really not you that they're rejecting. It's me. And as our culture goes the way that it is going, which I think we can all agree is not a good direction, a godless direction, this is the kind of thing that will start to percolate more and more in your life as you interact with the unsaved world. It goes with the territory of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Don't take it personally. We are, as Christians, candidates for trials. Jesus told us that in John 16, 33, when he said, In the world you will have tribulation. We are candidates as disciples of Christ for man's wrath. Paul, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, says, All who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We are candidates for the world's wrath. There at the very bottom, I just read to you the verses, John 15, verses 18 and 19. And of course, the world would hate us because who's orchestrating the system of the world? God's arch enemy, the devil. And if all of that weren't enough, ordinary trials, man's wrath, the world's wrath, we are also candidates for Satan's wrath. That's why we're to put on the full armor of God. Now, there is a form of wrath that we are not candidates for, and that's divine wrath. And I thank the Lord for that. But sometimes we speak so frequently about how we're exempted from God's wrath, we give people the impression that somehow the Christian life is easy. Uh, In fact, on my YouTube channel, um, sometimes I look at the comments, sometimes I I don't, because I already have enough gray hair in my head. But every once in a while I get brave and look at the comments and in one of our rapture videos someone wrote on there, so what you're saying is before things get really bad, God's going to beam us up. And I usually don't respond, but this time I did. I said, number one, you're watching way too much Star Trek. (laughs) I don't know of anything in the Bible that says we're going to get beamed up. You know, beam me up, Scotty. I do know about the Harpazo. Maybe that's what they're talking about, the great catching away of the church. And secondly, who in the world gave you the idea that we're removed from the earth before things get bad? I mean, who gave you that impression? The, The New Testament doesn't give you that impression. What it says is you're removed from the earth before divine wrath hits, which obviously is far worse than these other forms of wrath. But as Christians, we walk through these normal trials of life. Tribulation, man's wrath, Satan's wrath, the world's wrath. And here is Isaac directly in the will of God, and yet Abimelech and his entourage hate Isaac to the point where they sent Isaac away. And so what happens now is Abimelech begins to explain why he has come from Gerar to Beersheba, and he makes an observation. And it's in this observation that I think for all of us, it would be a tremendous New Year's resolution to ask the Lord to replicate this in all of our lives. So you see this in verse 28. It says, they said, that's Abimelech and his entourage, we see plainly, in other words, it's obvious, that the Lord has been with you. I mean, we want to get on the right side of you because we see God in you. Now, the statement that you might be the only Bible people read is actually a very true statement. The unsaved world, they typically will not darken the door of a church. 
unless it's more of a woke entertainment church. Uh, I don't know if they would darken the door of a church like this. Um, they typically will not pick up the Bible and read it because they have no interest in spiritual things because they don't have a new nature yet. But they are looking very carefully at your life. I mean, you, you talk Jesus and they're looking at you whether you know it or not. You, you actually have a ministry whether you realize it or not, you actually have a pulpit, whether you realize it or not, where the world is actually looking at you. And as the world was looking at Isaac, they could see the work of God in him. When we get to the Joseph story, the same thing is going to be said of Joseph. In Genesis 39, 2 and 3, it'll be said of Joseph, and the Lord was with Joseph so that he became a successful man and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw, that's the pagan Egyptian. Now the master saw that the Lord was with him, that is Joseph, and the Lord made all that he did prosper in his hand. It was obvious that God was with Joseph because the master wouldn't look at Hebrew Bible, (laughs) which probably didn't even exist at that point in time, except for some rudimentary forms of it. But he would look at Joseph's life. Joseph was the only Bible he would read. And he saw God and his presence. The same thing is said of Daniel in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 3. It says, then Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and the satraps This is in pagan Persia. Because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And I know what that spirit was. It was the Holy Spirit. And the king, that's the head of Persia, intended to appoint him over the entire kingdom. I mean, what a tremendous resolution this year to say, Lord, you know what? I don't know what's going to happen in the year 2023, but what I want is for your life and energy and power to be so evident in my life that the unsaved world takes notice. And I realize there's a dispensational change in this. Uh, These men were prospering financially, and maybe God's going to do that in your life in 2023. Or maybe in your life in the year 2023, he's going to kick out all the props. Financial props, career props, health props. And the unsaved world looks at you and says, wow, how can he or she walk through that with such tranquility and peace and trust in God? However God's going to work in our lives, let it be said of us, that God's work is so profound and so powerful that it even gets the attention of the unsaved world that would never read the Bible, never read a Christian book, never attend a Bible-based Christian church. After all, is it not said of us in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I mean, what, think about that for a minute. What does salt do? Salt makes you thirsty, doesn't it? Are our lives before God so 
upright and yielded to his will, that people look at our lives and they're suddenly thirsty for what we have. There's something different about you that I can't find in anybody else. And Jesus also calls us the light of the world. People will gravitate to the light. Some will hate the light because the light exposes. Others will gravitate to the light because without light, you're just stumbling around, groping around in the darkness. And what a glorious thing that Isaac is experiencing here. And you say, well, pastor, you know, you don't really understand. In the prior year, I messed things up and I didn't make the the best decisions. Well, have you been following our story here with Isaac? He made, a, he made a really bad decision earlier in this chapter. And yet God is such that he doesn't just throw people out. Um, his relationship to us is unconditional. He, he picks us up. He dusts us off. He puts us right back in the game. And I believe that in 2023, God is going to put a lot of people, within the sound of my voice, right back in the game even though they think that they're somehow disqualified from being used by God because of some bad choice or series of choices they made in the prior year. Isn't it great, New Year's, a uh, year of new beginnings? I just find this amazing about God. God is a God of newness. After all, we are new creations, are we not? Creatures in Christ Jesus, Second Corinthians 5, verse 17. And uh, after all, when the millennial kingdom is over, God is going to take this whole world and destroy it by fire and replace it with not just a heavens and earth, but a new heavens and new earth. And that's where John in Revelation 21 says, Behold, everything has become new. So God is in this business of newness. And maybe this year is going to be something completely new for you. It's within God's nature to do that, as I've tried to explain. So as they're coming and they're seeing plainly that God is at work in the life of Isaac, um, this is what Abimelech observes. So we said, let there be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you so that you will do us no harm. Just as we have not touched you and have done nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. Because after all, the end of verse 29 there, you are now the blessed of the Lord. What does Abimelech want? He Basically what he wants is a non-aggression treaty. I mean, the presence of God is so powerful on Isaac's life, Abimelech does not want to get on the wrong side of God. And Abimelech and his dynasty knew something about being on the wrong side of God, because all the way back in um, Genesis 20, I believe it is. Genesis chapter 20, you remember what God did to the Abimelech of Abraham's day? He closed all the wombs of the household of Abimelech until Abimelech released Sarah. Now, this particular Abimelech is not the same guy, but he obviously is part of the dynasty 
He knows dynastic history very well. And basically what he's saying, and he's smart, he's wise. He goes, I don't, I don't want something like that to happen to us that happened to one of our forebears. So we want with you, Isaac, a non-aggression treaty. You treat us well because we treated you well. Now, this is a covenant that they want. In fact, you'll see there in verse 28 and verse 29 the word covenant. And this is not a vertical covenant like Abraham had with God in Genesis 15. Genesis 15 is a one-way covenant coming from God to Abraham. That is not what is being spoken of here. This is a horizontal covenant between two parties on the earth. And that's what Abimelech wants. And he's wise for seeking that. Why? Because in the vertical covenant, God said something to the patriarch Abraham that now Isaac apparently is the beneficiary of. He said this, I will bless those who bless you, Genesis 12, verse 3, and the one who curses you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The moment God put his hand on the patriarch Abraham and gave him blessings and later on a covenant is the moment God knew that the forces of hell itself would come against God's program. Why? Because that's what Satan always does. Satan always comes against the agenda of God. And so be careful about the blessings of God, because the blessings of God will bring into your life a satanic resistance. And because God knew that would happen, he said, look, um, the one who curses you, I will curse. Now you'll notice that I've got the two words for curse there underlined. It doesn't show up in English, but you'll notice in Hebrew, those are two different words. The one who curses you, that's a light offense, will receive from God a curse, different Hebrew word, which is a heavy offense. And Abimelech knew that God did this because he knew the dynastic history of God closing up the wombs when Abimelech of Abraham's day took Sarah into his harem. And this guy has wisdom. Uh, I don't want to be on the wrong side of you. I don't want to be on the wrong side of your father Abraham. I don't want to be on the wrong side of God. So let's just make a non-aggression treaty. And he does this because he can see the visible hand of God on Isaac's life. It, It says there, verse 28, we see plainly. Now, is that said of your life? Is that said of my life? I understand there's a dispensational change there. We don't exactly walk in the same thing, but we have the blessings of the Holy Spirit. We have the blessings of the new nature. I mean, if you were going to be convicted of the crime of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, is there enough evidence to convict you? I hope so. Because that means you're usable. And God is going to use you in the lives of other people because you may be the only Bible people ever read. And you'll notice at the end of verse 29 what Abimelech says. He says, you are now 
blessed of the Lord. God, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, said to Abraham, I will bless you. Certainly that happened. Abraham is dead. And now the blessings of God through the Abrahamic covenant reside on Isaac. Isaac, you're blessed. The blessing doesn't come from you. It comes from above. And I really want to want right standing with you, Abimelech says. Gee, pastor, that's just a bunch of Old Testament stuff. I mean, you don't really expect me to believe in the year 2023 that I'm blessed of God, do you? Well, don't don't believe it because I say it. Believe it because your New Testament says it. Ephesians chapter 1, written to the church-age believer, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. You don't have to go to God and say, God blessed me. God already did that. It's in the past tense. Who has blessed us with 75%, no, with every spiritual blessing in the where? Heavenly places. In fact, your blessings are greater than land and riches that Isaac was and Abraham were walking in because they're actually a higher caliber, believe it or not. They're heavenly. And this then becomes the incentive for desiring to walk with God. You don't try to walk with God to get blessed. You walk with God because you are blessed. And the only normal and logical thing you can do is offer Jesus your life. Not because if you don't offer Jesus your life, maybe you're not saved or maybe your salvation is going to be taken away. All nonsense teachings. You walk with God because your account is maxed out. You can't believe what you have by grace. And the only logical and natural thing to do is to walk in the path that God has for you. It's your reasonable act of service, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. Yeah, but pastor, you don't understand. You know, I just got laid off from my job. I have all sorts of financial problems. I've got credit card debts. I've got relational struggles. I mean, I'm just not feeling very blessed. Well, remember what Jesus said to the church at Smyrna, the suffering church. Remember what he said. He said to them in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Now do a word study on that Greek word poverty as it's used there. And what you'll see is it's not the ordinary word for poor. It's the lowest level of poverty that you can descend to. I know your tribulation and your poverty, parenthetical statement, but you are rich. How could he say to people that are financially struggling that they're rich because of what Paul says in Ephesians 1.3? You are blessed with every... Spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So this subject of, you know, Isaac being blessed, ah, that's just Old Testament stuff, doesn't apply to us. Are you kidding me? You have the same blessings. In fact, you have greater blessings. I mean, you have the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit that is within you to emulate Christ-like character 
and experience the peace of God when your whole life, from a human perspective, could be falling apart. And you don't think that that gets the attention of the unsaved world? I mean, that, that's a special blessing. That is a blessing from above. So what happens in verses 30 and 31 is now the covenant, the horizontal covenant I've been speaking of is now made. And there's three things that happen. There's a meal. There's oaths. And there's a departure. Let's focus on the meal first. Some of you might be hungry. Verse 30. This is before they exchange promises, Isaac and Abimelech. Verse 30. Then he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. Now here's something that we have lost in the Western world. It's the covenant meal. When God makes a covenant, Typically what happens is there's a celebration of some sort and the celebration manifests itself in the form of a meal. That's what happened at Mount Sinai. I understand that that map may not reflect what you believe Mount Sinai is, but that's not the point. Don't get distracted by that. Wherever it is, it was a great place. How's that? This is the traditional view of Mount Sinai. When God brought the nation of Israel out of Egyptian bondage and took them to Mount Sinai, he gave them the Mosaic Covenant, which is an awesome covenant. And part of the bestowing of that covenant involved a covenant meal right there at the base of Mount Sinai. Exodus 24.11 says, Yet he did not reach out with his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate and drank. It's a celebration. It's there the nation of Israel is called a kingdom of priests by covenantal design. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. What do you do when you're called a kingdom of priests? Let's have a party. Let's celebrate. Let's have a meal. That's what Isaac and Abimelech are doing together. Yeah, but pastor, that's just Old Testament stuff. That doesn't apply to us, really. Come next Sunday and you'll experience a covenant meal called the Lord's Supper. And if if that's not enough, then we have a fellowship meal afterwards. I mean, how could you let your church do that kind of stuff, Pastor? Don't you know how carnal that is to feed people like that and how pagan that is? What, uh, excuse me, what Bible are you reading? If you're reading the Bible at all, God is into celebration. I mean, one of the, one of the most biblical things you could do is have a Lord's table and a fellowship meal. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, verses that will most likely be read as the Lord's table is ministered next week. Paul writing, quoting Jesus, I, I received from the Lord that, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. By the way, when Jesus comes back to the earth in Revelation 19, what's the first order of business after he disposes of the armies of the Antichrist? It's the marriage, what's it called? Supper of the Lamb. Isn't that supper? Isn't that food? And this excites me because eating is one of the things that I actually excel in in life. Revelation 19, verse 9 says, Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hey, there's an invite in your inbox. You're invited. I don't know if I want to go. Are you sure about that? Because it says if you're invited, you're blessed. And he said to me, Revelation 19, verse 9, These are the true words of God. It's almost like we we have this view of God that he's so vindictive and harsh. He's non-celebratory, if that's a word. That John has to say, yeah, there's going to be a party. There's going to be a feast. And these are the true words of God, just so you don't second-guess this. This is what God is into. And, and, and this is the kind of thing that happens between Isaac and Abimelech. What does Jesus say to the church at Laodicea? Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and will dine with him. Wow. So fellowship with Jesus is analogized to dinner and dining. You know, in the Western world, we're always in a hurry. Just throw the food down and get on with business. That's not how it worked in the ancient Near East. If you fellowshiped with people, that was a sign, and you dined with someone, that was a sign of intimacy. That's why Jesus, in the upper room, prior to his death, had one last meal with the disciples. It's fellowship. And when it says Jesus is outside the door of the church knocking to get in, that is not a relationship issue. That is a fellowship issue. He's saying to the church at Laodicea, which by the way means the people ruling, they're having Christianity without Christ. It's a scary thing that can happen to us if we're not careful. We can get so busy with Christendom, and ministry, so-called, that Jesus doesn't even have a seat at the table. And he's knocking on the door of the church trying to get in. A lot of people will portray that as salvation. That's not salvation. These people are saved. The people in Laodicea were saved? No, not the people in Laodicea. The church at Laodicea was saved. I've I've never heard anybody say that. Why do you think that's true? It's true because verse 19 comes before verse 20. You guys agree with me on that? And in verse 19, he says, 
Those whom I love, I rebuke. The book of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 13, says God only rebukes or disciplines his children. He does not discipline the unsaved world. What he does with the unsaved world is he judges them. But he will apply the rod of correction to his own people. And Revelation 3, verse 19, which comes before verse 20, talks about the disciplinary hand of God. And these people needed the disciplinary hand of God because they were having church without Christ. And Jesus says, I want a fellowship with you, as analogized to dining or a meal. This, by the way, is why First John... Chapter 1, verse 9 is in your Bible. It says there, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, that that verse is there. Everybody teaches it for people to get saved. No, it's not. It's not a relationship issue. It's a fellowship issue. How do you know that? Because chapter 2 comes after chapter 1. Amen to that? See how easy this is? This is not rocket science that I'm doing here. I'm just putting words into their context. 1 John 2, verse 1, right after the end of chapter 1 of 1 John, John says, my little children. It's not a letter to unsaved people. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is in your Bible, not for purposes of relationship. It's in your Bible for purposes of fellowship. Hey, I'm married. And guess what? I can offend my wife. I know that's a shock to everybody that I could actually do that. But yes, it is possible. She's going to come up now and give a testimony. No, I'm just kidding. But when I offend her, we're still married. Legally. Now, she might have second thoughts. I don't know. But legally, we're still married at the point of the offense. What is the offense broken? It is not broken the relationship. It is broken the intimacy and the moment-by-moment fellowship I can have with her. That's what's fractured. That's what unconfessed sin does in our lives. That's why 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is in our Bible. This is why Jesus is portrayed as being outside the door of the church at Laodicea, desiring to get into the church. So you'll notice that in all of these passages, the significance of the covenant meal. That's what Isaac and Abimelech are experiencing here. And now the two of them, and there's our beautiful picture. I wanted to put that up there of Jesus knocking on the door trying to get into the church at Laodicea. The picture I had up earlier was horrible because it was all blurry, but Pastor Jim rode to the rescue and renovated my PowerPoints. That's a much nicer picture to look at, don't you think? The second thing that happens here after the meal is they take the covenant oaths. You see that there in verse 31. In the morning, so that's right after the meal. See how the meal is connected to the covenant? In the morning, they arose early and exchanged oaths. They exchanged promises. 
Once again, this is not a vertical covenant coming from God downward, as was the case with Abraham, but this is a horizontal covenant between two people living in the general same territory because Abimelech is smart enough and wise enough, I should say, to see the obvious hand of God on Isaac in spite of Isaac's failure. Because Isaac is walking in his own unconditional covenant and he received that as a beneficiary of the Abrahamic covenant. And you look at the end of verse 31 and Abimelech, once he receives this, he departs. Verse 31, in the morning they arose early and they exchanged oaths. Then Isaac sent them, that's this entourage from Gerar. Then Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. Peace with who? Peace with each other and also peace with God. Because Abimelech remembered what happened to a prior Abimelech in Genesis 20, how God closed the wombs of Abimelech's household in Abraham's day. I'm not on the curse side of God. I am on the blessing side of God. That's what I was looking for. And I got what I came for. And now it's time for me to go. I'm at peace with God. I'm at peace with Isaac, and consequently I'm at peace with Isaac's God. Peace with God. Is that not the most important issue in a person's life? I can't think of an issue that's more significant than that. Am I at peace with God or not? Because the book of Romans, chapter 5 and verse 10, says, In our unsaved state, we were God's enemies. It's there. It's in your Bible. It's in Romans 5, verse 10. It says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, We shall be saved by his life. Boy, reconciliation, what does that even mean? I think the last time I looked, the Greek for reconciliation is dialoso, where two parties that formerly are at odds with each other, now they have a peace pact. They have a peace treaty. And before you got saved and before I got saved, Contrary to what the world system says, that we're all inherently good, we're all on the right path, as long as we're seeking God or religion or philosophy to the best of our abilities. Contrary to what the whole world system says, what the Bible actually says is before we get saved, we were God's very enemies. In fact, uh, I believe it was John the Baptist in John chapter 3, verses 3 through, John chapter 3, verse 36, makes this statement. And I'm flipping over there because I 
I could paraphrase it, but I don't want to butcher the Word of God. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath, wow, of God, wow, abides, that's a triple wow, on him. Before a person trusts in Christ for salvation, the wrath of God is hovering over their life like the sword of Diamocles waiting to fall at any minute. And once you understand that, then you understand the significance of the salvation word, dialasso, reconciliation. We need to be reconciled to God. I need peace with God. I need peace with the God that made me. Because prior to salvation, I'm his enemy. But once you receive reconciliation only through the shed blood of Jesus, because through the shed blood of Jesus, our sin debt was borne by him in our place, we are reconciled to God. That's why Romans 5.1, doesn't verse 1 come before verse 10? Verse 10 is the problem, Romans 5, verse 1 is the solution. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Why? Because I've tried hard? No. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word peace in Greek is irene. Sometimes um, someone is named Irene, a female. It's a beautiful name. It means peace. Uh, From the word Irene, we get the word Irenic, a peaceable person. It's the opposite of polemical. The Greek word for polemical um, comes from uh, the Greek word polemos, which means warlike. If a person is polemical, they are warlike. If they are Irenic, Irene, they're a peaceable person. And before you come to Christ, there is literally a war between God and you. And you better get that issue fixed. Because if you die in that state, you go off into eternal retribution. I desperately need, as a lost sinner in Adam's race, peace with the God that made me. I need to be able to put my head on the pillow every single night and say, thank you, Lord, that I am at peace with you. I'm no longer at war with you because I've trusted in the Savior. If that hasn't happened in a person's life, they've missed the most important issue they could ever wrestle with. Every other issue in your life, where you're going to live, what kind of car you're going to drive, how many kids you're going to have, whatever, those are such minor issues compared to this one. This is the issue. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. What's the main thing? We need peace with God. That's the main thing. That should be mentioned from every pulpit all over this country every single time the church meets. Because that's our greatest problem. And and Abimelech, to his credit, got that fixed. I don't know if he was saved or not. There's not enough data. But he knew he needed peace with Isaac's God, and he took care of it 
the best he knew. And you drop down to verse 32, and look what happens. They discover a well. Well, that's kind of weird. Why would you throw that in there? I mean, why do I need to hear about a well? Well, you need to hear about a well because that's how Beersheba, where this covenant took place, got its name. And so the discovery of the well is mentioned in verses 32 and 33. There's the find of the well and then the name of the well. Look at verse 32. Now it came about on the same day. Why mention the same day? Because the discovery of the well is related to the covenant. Because of the covenant, they named the well a particular name. And that became the name of that whole region that they, Isaac was sojourning in. So this discovery of the well is connected to the horizontal covenant that just took place between Abimelech and Isaac. Now it came about on the same day that Isaac's servants came in and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, we have found water. You see how God keeps blessing Isaac? He's walking in sin. He lies, tells the same lie that Abraham told earlier in Genesis 26. And yet, The presence of God is so profound upon him that even the pagan world of the time seeks to get right with him. And they actually discover this well with water. God's continual blessing on Isaac. And I'm here to tell you folks that that's going to happen in your life in 2023. Now, don't run home and start digging in your front yard or anything for water. What I'm talking about is God wants to keep blessing your life. Because that's the nature of God. Well, does that mean I'm going to become rich and prosperous? Maybe. Does that mean the bottom of my life is going to drop out where people can see Christ-like character in me? Maybe that's going to happen. But either way, the blessings of God will overtake you. That's the nature of God. God is a God that blesses, and he wants to keep blessing. Even the trials in your life, when you think about it, are a blessing. Because the book of James, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, clearly teaches that it is the trials of life that take us to the next level of maturity. That's why James, chapter 1, says, Consider it all joy, my brethren. Notice brethren to the saved. The unsaved world, they don't look at problems this way, but you can, because you're walking with God. Consider it all joy, my brethren. When you encounter various trials. So 2023 hits, here comes the trial, and you just say, thank you, Jesus. What an opportunity to grow. An opportunity to grow that I wouldn't have if this trial weren't here. And I'm a little bit afraid to even talk about that, because whenever I talk about something like that, God says, okay, now it's time for you to live it. Well, wait, Lord, I I meant that for other people. So be careful about being a Bible teacher. 
That's why James 3 verse 1 says, Let few of you presume to be teachers, knowing that the teacher incurs the stricter judgment. So pray for me, would you, in 2023? I don't know what's going to happen. So Isaac receives this well. Now this well is the first fruits of his inheritance because Isaac in the Abrahamic covenant actually was promised a track of real estate from modern day Egypt to modern day Iraq. He doesn't have that yet, but he's got a well. What does that mean? He's got the first fruits of the promise. He doesn't have the whole package yet, but an initial crop has come in guaranteeing his inheritance. And that's why Jesus, in his resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, and verse 23, in Paul's resurrection chapter, calls Jesus the first fruits. His bodily resurrection from the dead guarantees my resurrection from the dead as well. But each in his own order. God is not going to resurrect everybody at the same time. Each in his own order. First Jesus resurrects, and then the church will be resurrected in the rapture, and then the Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs will be resurrected at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, and then a thousand years will pass. And then there's a terrible resurrection of all the unsaved. And as their name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, they're cast into the lake of fire. Boy, if that's true, we need to get the gospel to people, don't we? You see, you start to undersell these doctrines that I'm talking about here. There's no sense in assertiveness in missionary work. There's no reason for it. A lot of people are walking around, running around today saying, well, you know, once you die as an unsaved person, you just cease to exist. The doctrine of annihilationism. The Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, not if they come to your house, but when they come to your house, if you converse with them, will try to sell you on that. And there's not a shred of biblical evidence to support it. If it were true, there'd be no incentive to evangelize. I mean, we talk all the time about being saved. You ever ask yourself the question, saved from what? What are we saved from? We're saved from an eternity separated from God, experiencing eternal retribution. Yeah, but pastor, can't you just say, you know, they're going to be separated from God why, why do you have to put in this eternal retribution stuff? Have you ever ministered to teenagers? If you tell a teenager who's got their cell phone and video games, if you don't trust Jesus, you're going to be separated from God. You know what they're going to say? Well, I don't care. I'm separated from God now and I'm having a great time. Just telling people they're going to be separated from God doesn't get across the urgency of the moment, does it? You throw in the words eternal retribution. Whoa, what's that all about? That's what we're saved from. And because Jesus rose bodily from the grave, he is our first fruits. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And concerning the first fruits, 
you already have the first fruits. Did you know that? Just like Isaac had a well guaranteeing that he would one day receive all of the land in the Abrahamic covenant, you've got first fruits also. What's the first fruits? It's the Holy Spirit. John fourteen sixteen and 17, which is where? In you. And you say to yourself, gosh, I really don't like it when I step out of line and the Spirit convicts me. Actually, when you receive that conviction from the Holy Spirit, you should say, praise the Lord. Because what I just experienced there is first fruits. Because I have that, God is going to give me the entire inheritance one day in heaven. Just as Isaac's reception of a well as first fruits guaranteed him the entire tract of real estate. One day in the future. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In him you also have, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given to you as a pledge of our inheritance. What's a pledge? Some of your... Translations will say a down payment. God, when you trusted in Christ and he put the Holy Spirit inside of you forever, gave you a down payment. And when a buyer makes a down payment on something, he's guaranteeing to the seller all of the payments. When Isaac received a well, it was a first fruits guarantee that he would receive all of the land one day. He didn't receive it, but he knew he was going to receive it because he had first fruits. Because the Holy Spirit is inside of you and you open up the Word of God and you say, you know what, I understand the Word of God a lot better than I could before I was saved. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I tried reading the Bible as a youth before I was saved at the age of 16. I couldn't understand it. But suddenly the Holy Spirit is inside of me and I start to understand it. That's what's happening in a lot of your lives. What is that? That's the presence of the Spirit. You step out of line and suddenly there's something inside of you saying, you know, you shouldn't do that. Or you shouldn't watch that. Or you shouldn't say that. Or you really ought to apologize. And we can get kind of irritated with that. Well, I was a lot happier without all that conviction inside of me. But when you experience those things, you ought to say, praise the Lord. Because I'm going to get everything one day. Because the Holy Spirit is a down payment. And so, closing here, verse 33, they give this well a name. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. What does Sheba mean in Hebrew? It means to swear. And you put it together with Beersheba, and it becomes the well of swearing. Not in a obviously cussing type of sense, but in an oath sense, because Abimelech and Isaac just entered into this Horizontal covenant with each other. 
So that's why the well is mentioned, because the well comes from the covenant that they just entered into, and they named it Sheba, Beersheba, well of swearing, and that's where that whole area that Isaac was sojourning in got that particular name. Now, you might remember back in Genesis chapter 21, where it was said this of of Abraham, verses, uh, oh, I don't know, 30 and 31, it says, He said, You shall take these seven lambs from my hand, so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba. So seven also comes from that same Hebrew root. Seven comes from the Hebrew word root, and also from that same Hebrew root comes the word swearing, oaths, in other words. And so this is how Beersheba got its name. The number seven, Genesis 21, and later on it was the place of the well of swearing the oaths. You see how historical all of this is? The journey from Gerar to Beersheba, how Beersheba got the name Beersheba, how the name was re-emphasized. You see all of the actual historical characters. We've got an Isaac. We've got Abimelech. We've got his commander. We've got his advisor. Uh, Once again, you get the idea that these things really are true stories. These things really happen. So it's not a situation where, well, you know, to get the real history... I've got to sit under somebody in a classroom somewhere to get real history. You guys in the church, you're just doing religion. The unsaved world is trying to drive a wedge between spirituality and history. The Bible knows no such thing. The Bible says these are historical events that God used to teach the human race profound spiritual lessons the greatest of which is Jesus of Nazareth, who bridged the gap 2,000 years ago between sinful man and holy God. Holy God the Father and sinful man. He's the God-man. He bridged the gap through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And he leaves the human race with one basic message, trust and what I did for you 2,000 years ago to be right with God. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust your denomination. Don't trust your good efforts. Don't trust your religious activity. Trust me. And the moment you put your trust in Jesus for your eternity and the safekeeping of your soul is the moment you're saved just like that. And I have been hoping and praying all week that as we taught this message, many people either in the building or listening online or listening on the archives after the fact would be placing their faith in Jesus for their salvation. Yeah, but wait a minute, Pastor. What about all the stuff about walking an aisle and joining a church, giving money, 
That's the world of religion that will tell you that. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says becoming a Christian is not a 12-step process. It's a single step. You trust in the work of the Savior for your eternity, for the forgiveness of your sins, for the safekeeping of your soul, and just like that, in a nanosecond. The theologians call it in a punctiliar point in time. Wow. I had to pay a lot of tuition money to learn words like that. At a punctiliar point in time, in an instant in other words, you're made right with the God that made you. And now he's not just your creator, but he is your redeemer. I would encourage people to put their faith in Christ as I'm speaking. If it's something that you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. And next week, now that the Isaac story is over, we'll look at Esau's wives. That immediately shows you he didn't make a good choice there. And then we'll be moving into chapter 27 where Jacob becomes the key figure. So I would encourage you to read those last couple of verses and into chapter 27. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for a new start, a new year. We invite you to work magnificently and wonderfully in our lives this year. We do pray, Lord, that as individuals and as a church, that this year would stand out as really something special. For you got your way in our lives, and you extended your circle of grace to others that would need it through us. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.